difference between radio and what we have today is that radio was not infinite and on demand. The internet is infinite and on demand. So you never have to tune into a radio station if you own the thing already, essentially, by having access to it, which is what you have on the internet. So the radio gave you a little taste of something, the same way someone at the farmer's market has got a little piece of fruit chopped up and they give you one little piece of it and you're like, that's pretty good, I'm going to buy four. You, in the internet, you essentially have hijacked the truck from the fruit vendor at the farmer's market before he even had a chance to set up. Welcome. This is The Sacred Speaks, and I'm your host, John Price. Before I get started on anything, I'd like to let you know that the song you just heard, the first song, Not For Anyone, is was created by today's participant, Count, a.k.a. Michael Eldridge. It's from his band, Inu, I-N-U, and I'll get into resources in a second, but I just want to let you know that there's a reason why um, the first thing I wanted you to to know about today's participant was his music. And at the very end of the episode, I'll play another, the full track uh, from that same album, a song called Sealed. And now to a story. As I'm listening to this episode, I can't help but be drawn to one of my favorite stories that Robert A. Johnson provides uh, that was apparently one of Jung's favorite stories. It's at the beginning of Robert Johnson's book, Owning Your Own Shadow, Understanding the Dark Side of the Psyche. And it's a short story. I want to read it to you, and then we'll get to bios and resources. Um, what what uh, Robert Johnson says is, it was said that Dr. Young's favorite story went something like this. The water of life, wishing to make itself known on the face of the earth, bubbled up in an artesian well and flowed without effort or limit. People came to drink of the magic water and were nourished by it, since it was so clean and pure and invigorating. But humankind was not content to leave things in this Edenic state. Gradually, they began to fence off the wall, 
charge admission, claim ownership of the property around it, make elaborate laws as to who could come to the well. They put locks on the gates. Soon the well was the property of the powerful and the elite. The water was angry and offended. It stopped flowing and began to bubble up in another place. The people who owned the property around the first well were so engrossed in their power systems and ownership that they did not notice that the water had vanished. They continued selling the non-existent water, and few people noticed that the true power was gone. But some dissatisfied people searched with great courage and found the new artesian well. Soon that well was under the control of the property owners, and the same fate overtook it. The spring took itself to yet another place, and this has been going on throughout recorded history. And I'll let you uh, come to your own conclusions about that once you listen to the episode, but I'm glad you're here, and this is an issue that is uh, deeply important because there are many aspects of um, what we believe to be sacred, and we need to be conscious about what goes into our attending to those things with our time and our money. Because sometimes our money may not be going where we want it to go. Okay. Um, I, I've, I met Count years ago because we did some uh, business together. He, he, mixed a, uh, he mixed an album that I was working on and uh, back in 2000, 2001. And since then, he's been doing a lot of great work, not only with music, as a producer, engineer, writer, performer. He has created a documentary to help us understand what's really going on beneath the surface of the music industry. If you would go to Unsound, the movie, U-N-S-O-U-N-D-T-H-E-M-O-V-I-E, you can see the trailer of this uh, Grammy-winning producer, Count. And you'll get an idea. It's about five minutes. And if you... (laughs) I actually recommend, if you can, press stop on this right now, watch the, watch the trailer, and then come back, and you'll know a lot more of what we're talking about. It's five minutes of your time. It's worth it. Um, as far as resources are concerned, you can also look count up at vertebrateproductions.com, V-E-R-T-E-B-R-A-E-P-R-O-D-U-C-T-I-O-N-S.com. And uh, I'll read his bio real quick, and then we'll jump into it. San Francisco-based producer Count, a.k.a. Michael Eldridge, has been involved in just about every aspect of the music business. He's worked for indie and major labels, scored films, has worked as producer, engineer, mixer, and remixer for artists such as DJ Shadow, Frank Sinatra, Radiohead, John Cale of Velvet Underground, No Doubt, New Order, Deep Blue Something, Run DMC, Tycho, Zoe Keating, Galactic, Trombone Shorty, The Bee Gees, Thievery Corporation, and many more. With his own bands, Inu and Halu, Count has toured the U.S. and performed live shows such as Seattle's Bumbershoot Festival, the San Francisco International Film Festival, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, Filter Magazine's Culture Collides Festival, and more. Count is currently directing the documentary on sound, which is about the impact that the Internet revolution is having on all creators. He's become a vocal advocate on artist rights issues. Artist rights issues. Speaking at the Future of Music Summit, C2SV, South by Southwest, Grammys on the Hill, and several international summits. Count is also currently involved in the C3, Content Creators Coalition, which is helping to organize a collective voice to deal with issues affecting creators in the Internet age. I also, if you go to Vertebae Productions, I also recommend you listen to some of the tunes that Count has been working on. It's a 
just <laughs> just press play. There's a bunch of music to listen to, and it is good. Um, okay, so uh, the theme music uh, for today, if for every episode, is Modern Nations. You can get them at modernnationsmusic.com. And also, about three-quarters of the way through the episode, I wanted to include a little bit of Count's work, and so you'll hear a snippet of a song from Tycho. And you can reach Tycho at tychomusic.com, T-Y-C-H-O-M-U-S-I-C.com. I I bought about three albums of his, and they're great. Uh, Okay, what else? Oh, this website, The Sacred Speaks. Look up thesacredspeaks.com. I'll post all the music, information, bio, all the episodes are on there. I try to keep it up to date, and of course you can email me there if you have any questions uh, or concerns or jokes. Um, I think that's it. I don't have much else. I'm just excited to bring you count and, uh, and to dive into this issue. So thanks for listening, and, um, and please wear some headphones when you listen to this. It's good music. And also, support your artists. Right? We used to put a quarter in the jukebox, and we completely understood that maybe it wasn't all going to the artist, but at least we were paying for it. And what we all need to do is kind of reconnect with that approach. Um, the ecosystems that are present in all of these creative endeavors that we all enjoy are, uh, are in need of us uh, voting with our dollars, as Count says, uh, aligning our economics with our core values. Um, and, yeah, <laughs> well, that's it. You'll get into plenty. I'm glad you're here. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll leave it there. Count, I think this is a cool opportunity to really dig into something that's curious and kind of blends together a bunch of different kind of arenas that I've been um, studying for a while. I think certainly one one quote that comes to mind is, um, uh, I don't care what you tell me your values are. Show me where you spend your time and where you spend your money. uh, And I'll tell you what your values are. And I... You know, I, I think on one level, we'll get into this, but I, you know, you kind of watch schools dwindle their appreciation and kind of space for the arts programs. And, um, you know, it's, it's a concern, but as you know, when, when I reached out to you to talk about this, um, this subject matter, you immediately started talking about kind of how you were forecasting this a long time ago. So I'm, I'm eager to kind of pick your brain and figure out you know, what it was that you were thinking back then and certainly how things have evolved and how it turned into your own process of creativity through this documentary that you've put together. So thank you for being here. I'm really grateful and I'm eager to, to dig into it, man. Glad to be here. You uh, you kind of hit the nail on the head by, by kicking this thing off, um, pointing out that you kind of vote with your dollars and that's kind of the way the world works <laughs> these days. Yeah. And right now, people aren't voting with their dollars in terms of how they appreciate the people that create the things that we love and depend on. And uh, we're in great danger of our generation being really one of the first generations in modern time that will be defined by squeezing out 
all of the support for creative anything, creative content. And I use that word with smart-ass air quotes <laughs> that you can't see right now because this is a podcast. But <laughs> I use those because the people who make things that we love and depend on, whether it be music, books, uh, photographs, uh, and probably most importantly, news, journalism, um, they despise this word content. And it's the C word. It's the new C word. And, uh, and, it, and it, it really is de devalued the things that sort of, you know, run our society, right? These are the things that, that literally create culture and society. And when you devalue them, uh, you actually end up devaluing them monetarily, but also emotionally. And it seems like an obvious thing to say, right? When, when something's free and it's just lying around everywhere, you kind of lose your appreciation for it. And it's not, not just in a financial sense. So that our, this, this past generation has really been the first generation where that, that has been the case um, in modern times. And what I found incredibly, shockingly, underreported uh, was this story of, well, how did it happen? How did it happen that we went from a society that valued most all creative pursuits, whether you were a, you're an author or a photographer or a rock star, obviously we valued that highly. Perhaps, you know, it could even be argued that we valued rock stars too highly but um but hey i mean they do the things that that the rest of us can't do right they they put a voice to the the issues that we aren't able to articulate and they do it in a do yeah. it in a way that entertains us and inspires us so hey if if rock stars are going to be overpaid that's that's okay with me <laughs> you know and that that's that's where that's where we're at today and I wanted to tell that story of, well, how did the internet become free? Yeah, well And said. who's responsible and who's really benefiting from free? Because... Well, before, yeah. let me interrupt real quick, because I, I want to, before we jump headfirst into that, I want to be sure that we, we tend to some of the, you know, who you are and what this is all about. You know, I think... Sure. I think I will I will be giving a little bit of an introduction in the you know kind of the prelude of the the podcast but I'd love for you to be able to introduce yourself and let listeners know and I, I got to tell you kind of a an ulterior motive here for me is that I get to know people in a new way by micing up things and having this conversation we get to have a conversation we would otherwise probably not have right. So would you mind doing that just spending a bit of time kind of giving your your bio Sure um, so I've been a music producer for over 20 years. Um, I moved out to San Francisco in the early mid nineties and, and saw an opportunity to, you know, take a shot at doing something that I was incredibly passionate about, even though I had studied architecture and other things, I thought, you know what, why not go for it? 
I'm I'm willing to do whatever it takes to to be you know quote unquote successful um, being a music producer. So I came to San Francisco just really with the intention of doing my version of successful, which is as long as I can make a living at doing this, I will be satisfied. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. everybody has their different versions of success, and some people get into particularly the entertainment industries, maybe because they want to be rich, maybe they want to be famous, maybe they want to get ladies. There are a lot of reasons people get into the business I get into, but I came at it really kind of more from the art world, which is usually (laughs) I just want to make a living at doing this so that I can keep doing it. And, And so that was sort of, that's how I got into this this world. And what was your um, what were you doing musically before that? Because um, you're you're back you're you're a drummer, right? I mean, that's your I'm a, your I'm a drummer, and uh, and I sang a bit, and mm-hmm. so I was in my own bands. I was in I grew up in Austin, Texas, and then uh, spent a little time in uh, North Texas with with a couple of couple of friends of mine who ended up we ended up starting a band that had a wildly successful hit single <laughs> and then uh, wasn't exactly the kind of music that I was aiming to do. So naively I thought, well, I, I mean, I'll just go to San Francisco and I'll do more of that kind of music and maybe it will become wildly successful too. <laughs> Turns out it's a lot harder to have a hit single than you might think. And uh, and those guys were- At least incredible. you got to ride that way for a little while. Yeah, and those guys were incredibly gifted at writing a certain kind of music that that it's just it's it's not easy to come by, um, and so when I moved to San Francisco, I my goal was really to work on independent music. I didn't really have the the desire to move to L.A., which is where the producers who worked on the big pop hits lived. Uh, and worked. I really just wanted to work on music that I liked. That that was my goal. Can I make a living working on music that I like? The kind of music that I would buy. Mm-hmm. And so I set up my life and my career around that. Trying to find projects that were things that I liked, even if they didn't make money, I would do them and hope that eventually that would come back to me in the form of other people saying, hey, we heard such and such album will you do that for us? And so, miraculously, the strategy kind of worked. So I was an intern at a recording studio, and uh, before long, I people could see that I could do, you know, what I, what I said I could do. I knew the tech, technology and had a good ear for it, and I worked hard. So pretty quickly, I started getting offers to do projects that were it far exceeded where I thought I would be um, at that time. <laughs> so it all, seed, it all seemed to be going the right direction. And all of it made perfect sense, um, except it happened to happen at a time when the Internet revolution was happening. And that's my long-winded way of explaining that my life and career perfectly straddle the pre-internet revolution and post-internet revolution. 
So I'm, wow. I'm kind yeah. of just the right person to get into this subject. I didn't know it at the time. Uh, it took me years before I realized, oh my God, I'm the one who has to tell this story because A, I'm in San Francisco. I am in the heart of the internet revolution. I knew people that were working at the companies that transformed the planet. Um, and I mm. knew that they had positive intentions, most of them. And, and I could see how optimistic they were. And I shared that optimism. I was nothing but excited about grabbing this new technology and doing what I could with it. Whether it was the technology that we used in the studio to make music, or even more importantly, the technology that the masses were using to, to promote music and to discover not just music, but anything, information. That's what people called it out here. <laughs> they, called in, they called it information, even whether it was music or news or anything. And the motto was, information wants to be free. And I heard this everywhere. Um, you couldn't avoid this cliche phrase in San Francisco throughout the 90s and the early 2000s, and you still hear it today. And it, it wasn't until many years later when I was researching the film that I realized the exact context of where that quote came from. Most people knew that it was a quote from Stuart Brand, and who was a, you know, a visionary, he was a really smart guy, and he had a lot, he was highly involved in the sort of uh, shaping the direction of in the course of new technologies and the internet. And he was a part of a network of people that were very influential in the direction of the internet. But what most people don't realize is that's not the full quote. And what he was actually saying was 100% opposite to the way people mm. use that quote. Yeah. And so my career, as it started... You, sorry, Count, do, okay. do you remember the quote, the full quote? Yeah, um, the full quote is essentially, on one hand, information wants to be free. And on the other hand, information wants to be very expensive. Because the right information in the right place in the right time can change everything. But yet, <laughs> information can't just be free because it's very expensive to create and produce. So if you're an <laughs> author doing research, oh, it could take 10 years to get this tiny piece of information. So it's incredibly valuable to the world. So it can't be free. And so you, these two things have to be balanced, which is the most important thing that was eliminated from this highly shortened out of context quote which became the rallying cry for the quote unquote free internet movement wow it sounds like uh hate ashbury gone wrong is what it sounds like it's you know, exactly like the, what it is and a lot of these yeah. visionaries came from that movement and you know they right. would have considered themselves hippies john perry barlow they did psychedelic drugs they were very optimistic and I would, <laughs> yeah, it's hard, hard to say this because a lot of people will, will, would be upset hearing this, but, you know, after doing the research for the film, I realized that they were incredibly, hyperly, naively optimistic. They were incredibly naive about what the Internet was going to do and the direction it was going to take the world in. Many of them 
uh, had hoped, as as I did, as most musicians did, that the internet uh, were was going to break down the power structures of the past. It was going to yeah. make things more open. We were going to r- remove the gatekeepers. Uh, it was going to give a lot of people freedom who didn't have the opportunities they had before, but particularly creators, because creators were the first people really to embrace the internet in a certain way. Obviously, the computer scientists were first, but shortly after, and I and I make this argument in my documentary that had it not been for musicians and other creators powering the internet with their quote-unquote content, the masses never really would have picked up on the internet, at least not as quickly, right? So in mm-hmm. 1994, people didn't use the internet for much. There wasn't really any robust online commerce. People, the idea of buying something over the internet seemed strange and foreign to most people. Most people, if they did use it, they used it for for email. But when musicians started appearing online and their work, writers, photographers, that's when the internet really took off. And the combination, the intersection of that plus these new browsers... Mark Andreessen and the Netscape browser in particular made it such that the internet could be a media-rich environment as opposed to just text or command-line interface that nobody understood. Um, And so, you know, musicians really helped allow the internet to blossom and and bring in the masses, right? The masses came when, when the popular creators you know, appeared online. And and so my, my career follows this trajectory, this arc where I became more and more valued as a producer and my career really started to blossom and started to work with major artists, platinum Grammy-winning artists. And it started to, to ramp up right at the time when the internet became more and more <laughs> the way people accessed music and not just well, is this like in 98 or 90 yeah what were we so about? this is like you know between 98 and 2003 is where the the very key point in my career where it's just started to really take off but sadly my as my career arc goes up the the valuation of music goes completely the opposite direction. We go from the wow. high highest peak of the music industry in 1998 to Napster one year later to BitTorrent in 2003. And so the peak years of my career, even though I'm still working with great artists today, there's so little money in it that it has become virtually... A hobby. I think five of the four out of the past five years I've ha- I've worked on Grammy nominated or Grammy winning projects, but I struggle to live in a tiny one bedroom in Oakland <laughs> uh, because that music, which is so widely consumed and loved, makes no money anymore. Because well, and let me let me address one of the arguments real quick because I kind of want to out some of these things as we go. Because the, right there, I, I'm I can hear people saying, 
well, come on. These are a bunch of entitled, wealthy artists. Art has always been about kind of doing what you love and not caring about the consequences as far as the materialistic side of things go. Sure. But th there are, there are, I mean, that, that move there or that argument is really shallow because there are such broader implications here. Yes, absolutely. So, what do you say to that? Well, I think there, there people, there, they conflate um, the music industry with musicians. They assume that they've seen the top of the top, the less than 1%, and they see the amount of riches that those people have acquired over their careers, and they apply that to everyone else doing music, and they assume that musicians are rich or that the music industry is somehow corrupt and rich. And what they don't understand is that there is a fundamental misunderstanding with how, with the general public and music fans not understanding how the music business works. Music business is really interesting, um, and it's definitely had its problems. I mean, do not get me wrong. There, I railed against the things that I disagreed with about the music industry when I first started and that's why I was so optimistic about the internet revolution changing and and really kind of killing off the old aspects of the industry and, and allowing a very vibrant middle class of of artists to thrive niche artists that couldn't get I'm on the radio you're, you're talking about the uh the kind of suit mentality, right? In, yeah, in quotes. and and yeah. and it wasn't what people thought it was because what really happened in the music business is yes, of course they spent lots of money to get hit-driven artists and they crammed that music down our throats in the radio and more or less bullied their way into getting those mega artists um, into into catapulting into them into popularity into fame. And they made lots of money off of that. But what people fail to realize is they took that money and then went and invested it in 25 other artists. And many of those artists were not mainstream uh, pop artists that were intended just to make them money. They were often very artistic and very independent. And if you look at the roster of, like, say, a major record company, let's take Warner Brothers in the 90s, Sure, they had some big hit hit artists, but they also had Cut Chemist. <laughs> they had the Flaming Lips. Right. These are artists that, that did you not right. get mainstream radio airplay. They were just cool artists. And so yeah. Warner Brothers was funding the arts, right? But they were doing it by having hits. And, of course, some of that money went to fund other hits that we may turn our noses up at. But uh, an incredible amount of money, and let's not forget, this is not the the money is not about money for those artists. It's about them not be, being able to create. It's funding the the three to four months they spend out of the year writing the album, promoting that, and then allowing them to con, you know to sustain themselves while they're creating. So it's not about that's that's a really important point there, which is that the money at at minimum is for spaciousness. 
to give any artist the ability to just exactly designate the time it takes you to, just, to should, create. Uh, people should honestly think of it much the same way they would think of a research grant that they would give to a chemist who's looking to find a cure for some disease, or you know, it's it, here is money for you to run your lab and to spend the time doing what you need to do so that at the end of that year you can have some results that the people like that the lot, world yeah. can benefit from not just you yeah. and that's a very important point people fail to 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 realize this is we all benefit from having this music and you may not be a fan of all the all the music that was on Warner Brothers but i guarantee you they had a they had a part in funding the things that we love and and consume daily for a lot of people like you know the, i would say the majority of the population you know has enjoyed to some degree even if you're just like a jazz guy you know <laughs> there's definitely some music in that warner brothers catalog that 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 you love and that you wouldn't want to live in a world without so the stuff that we do that has now been reduced to the C word, content, is stuff that, you know, makes the world go round. And it certainly, without a doubt, has had a major role in powering the Internet, right? We create the things that power the Internet. Because if you look at the traffic on the Internet and what people do and use it for, aside from email, a large, a large part of it in terms of data is creative works but absolutely at yet so we're at this point in time where as technology companies have become more powerful and more valued and are making more money than ever before the people who make the stuff that power those platforms are making the least amount they ever have made let's take spotify for example spotify had an ipo after years of lying about <laughs> the fact that they were going to go public. Um, they were valued for at over $10 billion at some point before they had their IPO, their non-traditional IPO. Um, and at that point, all of the record labels in combined together were worth less than that. This, this makes no sense let me, let me put this another way this is like this is like valuing the bottle over the wine inside of the bottle spotify is just a, a spreadsheet and without the music it's literally nothing but yet it was worth more than all of the combined history of music somehow or another and that's the perfect illustration of what has happened in the internet revolution it went from this idealistic thing where we wanted to connect people directly to one another. It went from that idea to being hijacked and going completely the opposite direction, which is there are intermediaries, <laughs> there are middlemen that gain all of the value of everything being created on the Internet. It's precisely the opposite of what the, the founders intended. And I don't say that um, uh, willy-nilly, I actually interviewed one of the creators of the yeah. internet in my, my documentary, and he confirmed, <laughs> right. yes, this is not what we intended. Um, but uh, 
Yeah, so we're at a point now where the technology companies have sort of hijacked and gleaned all of the value from the things that are created on the internet. And they didn't just, they started with music. That was the first thing to sort of be, um, to have it, to become devalued, to go through the digital transition. And it was ugly. We went from, we lost over half of, of our revenue in a very short period of time after Napster appeared. Because why would anyone pay for music if they could get it for free? And uh, and then one by one, other industries were hit. And that started with music, but now, you know, 15 years later, we're seeing the ugly results reaching journalism. And it is the root cause of the rise in fake news. Because mm. it's one thing for music to be free, but when the news becomes free, meaning there's no money in it anymore <laughs> and th you don't you stop investing in journalists um, what is the result will you combine that the lack of funding for journalism the increased pressure to create journalism that doesn't really resemble a journalism the way I think of journalism but is more like celebrity gossip whatever gets the most clicks you combine that with a third thing, which is citizen journalism, which, when it first started, seemed like a great idea. Wow, Twitter could allow a guy in Egypt to post about what's really going on on the ground, and we could have this sort of, we could sort of support what's happening with the professional journalists with people on the ground. It seemed like the greatest thing ever. But that citizen journalism turned into fake news. It turned yeah, well, there's into... a guy in Delaware who just likes to be a dick. Yeah. Wow. And and rant about his views about how so and so is ruining America, and here's a completely made up story about how the Clintons are running some <laughs> child child ring at a pizza parlor and. You know, very quickly, you've got these three things coming to a head and creating the, the ground, laying the groundwork for what we now call fake news. All of that is rooted in this idea of the quote unquote, you know, free Internet. And it really is a commentary on some level. And I, I you know, with all due respect to all of us, um, we 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 tend in mass we tend to be a pretty easily seduced bunch and um easily. you know whatever sp whatever sparkles and shines you know we 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 go after and i keep thinking about the the sirens from the odyssey and the siren song you know it it's seductive and then we're drowning and yeah you know i'm i, I tend not to be pessimistic but it certainly feels like we're drowning and um yeah, well, I just, that, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful, but it feels that way now. Yeah, I think we have to remain hopeful, but we also have to, we have to be open-minded, but not so open-minded that our brains fall out of our heads, right? <laughs> that's <laughs> well, take it, and that's take us through I think this the, really. The, I think that's the best way to explain 
what happened in the internet revolution that started off so optimistic and so positive in its roots and went so far wrong and you know really in at the end of the day it's a pretty small group of people a group of activists that had these naive I- ideas that the internet shall set everyone free and it'll be the greatest thing ever and there will be no problems we'll we'll solve all of the problems of the past and they naively followed this vision and failed to realize that the internet is part of the world it is part of the physical real world they looked at it like cyberspace and they used that terminology Mm -hmm. john perry barlow called himself a cyber libertarian (laughs) this is back before libertarian had you know more of a political uh, association but right but he called himself that and it was it, it says a lot about how people thought about this revolution that they literally felt like the internet could somehow be free from the physical world and separate and have no rules literally no rules like that was one of their core beliefs and you you had have to real i mean you have to be completely naive to think that at some point giant corporations were going to get in on this right and that the government, of course, was going to have a part in this because the government created the Internet. The U.S. government funded the Internet, and they passed the laws that enabled the Internet to grow and expand. Of course, they were going to have some role in it. It was never going to be this cyberspace, like floating around in space where there were no rules. It was a complete free-for-all. Of course, that was never going to be the case. And 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 if it were the case that the internet were going to be this sort of free-for-all and anybody could do whatever they wanted, it would only be a matter of time before bad people with bad motives and bad intentions screwed it up for everyone, right? <laughs> of course that was going to be the case. And that, yeah. you know, for for musicians, that was Napster. For, you know, for news, that was... <laughs> Facebook, right? Facebook killed news in a way that, you know, it might take another decade before we get it back, right? Um, you know, there, of course, there were going to be people that just wanted to make some money off of it, too, that really weren't, didn't have any horrible motives. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what ended up happening was a lot more than just uh, somebody getting rich off of creative content or your personal data or this quote-unquote information that we're talking about it became a lot more sinister than that let's map this on let's let's give context here i mean i'm i remember when napster came online and i'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to the not only the economics but the structure of how napster worked and why that started to give you uh you know, your, your reservations and fears that, that ended up manifesting. Well, Napster is a very interesting story in a lot of ways. What people thought Napster was was far different than what they portrayed themselves in the media. And, I, you know, it was two college kids, and in a, in a, in a way they were young and naive, but the, the adults that were surrounding them were not young and naive. They knew exactly what they were doing. 
So the way Napster presented itself in the media was the big bad music industry, those giant evil corporations, they're trying to shut us down and we're just trying to share music the way people always have shared music, like cassette tapes. We're just college kids trying to share music and these big bullies are trying to shut us down so they can make a ton of money. That was the narrative. And what people didn't realize was is that very shortly after Napster started, the adults in the room moved them from the other side of the country to Silicon Valley to try to cash in. They were raising millions of dollars in venture capital while at the same time in the media talking about how they're, they're just building an online community of sharing. What online community of sharing raises tens of millions of dollars in venture capital. So, <laughs> that wasn't what Napster was about. Napster was about taking the work of other people and trying to scheme a way to glean all the value from that for themselves. The interesting thing about their narrative, about how they were a community of sharing, is that they were planning on creating a huge multi-million dollar business and we're already raising money for it, and they had zero intention of sharing any of that money with the musicians that created that music. I, I forget how Napster worked. Was it a, um, did you, did, were there, was there any fee or subscription, or how did so that Napster work? So Napster was just piracy, like full-blown piracy. It, it never had any intention of, of, of uh, prior to the lawsuits, had any intention of building a legitimate business out of it. It was only after they were sued that they tried to force the record companies to the table to negotiate with them. But, and it took a long time. I mean, this was like a, a multi-year lawsuit that finally ended with Napster getting shut down because it was very, became very clear after they actually found emails where the founders of the company were talking very openly about how they were being there were a music piracy platform that wow. that evidence was enough for them to the judge to shut them down but of course in the wake of Napster and this is what I think a lot of people fail to realize they think of Napster as old news um, the, the wake of Napster all of the piracy platforms that emerged one after another just decimated the creative industries and has had a huge impact on our society far beyond the money that would have gone to some record executive, which is how most people think of it. Will you speak to that? Because that, that I think is something people yeah. need to hear about, you know, the consequences beyond just lining the pockets of either the musician or the yeah. record company. Yeah, so, so I mentioned earlier that the music business has an interesting way of doing sort of this quasi-socialism, right? <laughs> they have... You know, big artists that make lots of money, and then the money that those big artists make goes, of course, some goes to the artist, some goes to the record label, who takes an enormous risk by investing a lot of money in these artists. And most of those don't pan out. So if you're taking a lot of risk, um, yeah, you, you deserve to get a decent percentage of that money. So they're take, assuming all the risk. And then... Uh, some of the money goes to fund and develop a bunch of new artists. And so the, the 
most people think of the music industry as a lot of money or, 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 or this. Most people think of this issue as being very cut and dry. The Napster issue was just a story about greedy record labels screwing over artists. And this was just a bunch of young, idealistic, you know, tech people at Napster were trying to come up with a solution and and they should be allowed to do that. <laughs> and it's 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 a very laughable narr- narrative because it's so far from the truth. Um, and but the impacts of what happened with Napster we're, we're, we're feeling today and they go well beyond music. Right. So once it became clear that there was only one technicality, at least according to the law, that made Napster illegal, it didn't take long before a bunch of smart tech people to jump right in and have and start their other piracy platforms. And so one by one you saw LimeWire, Kazaa, Grokster, all these other in, in similar lawsuits where they would they would be taken down eventually. But there's you know the laws that protect copyright are very vague and very outdated and very poorly written. And when the laws were passed in 1996, none of these platforms even existed. The internet wasn't mm. used by most people. And so we're still stuck with these laws that exist from before the internet. And one of these laws basically basically allowed w- 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 the downfall of Napster was that it was centralized to some degree, right? You had to go through Napster to get what you wanted. And because it was centralized, they could argue that, well, you had to have known what these people were doing, blah, 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 blah. Fast forward a few years later, somebody smart enough realizes that, well, what if I could decentralize this? And that's really the great power of the Internet in general, is that it is a decentralized architecture. Most people use the Internet in a very centralized way, right? The giant tech monopolies have made tons of money by inserting themselves between end users and becoming middlemen, right? That is what, that's what Facebook is, right? You're not actually directly communicating with your friends and family members, right? You go in between Facebook and they Mm -hmm. make all the money from that. Um, So the smart folks who created BitTorrent realized that, well, if you could decentralize this, you could have an infinite amount of piracy and you'd never get caught and the laws actually make it such that you can't really be held accountable and there's technically not really a realistic way to even enforce enforce these laws so is the is on their end is it is it advertising advertisement driven is that how they're making their money well BitTorrent is just a protocol it's a back end that anybody can use to do whatever they want so the pirate bay is is you know is powered by BitTorrent and and any other number of torrent sites so you can create these little software clients that that use BitTorrent 
and the end users can see ads on them. And that's how uTorrent worked. And uh, fun fact here, um, <laughs> folks, uh, the people who started Spotify and were the primary investors in Spotify and the founder and CEO of Spotify was actually the CEO of uTorrent prior to Spotify. And the primary investor in Spotify is none other than Sean Parker, the founder of Napster. So wow. Spotify, which until Apple started its service just recently, was essentially a monopoly of the entire music business had become Spotify, right? The only way people were really listening to music was via Spotify. And so the people who were literally monopolizing and the entire music um, industry were two pirates. <laughs> they just figured out a way to do it legally, and they used that leverage, that leverage that now that piracy had become rampant to the degree that you couldn't control it anymore, they used that leverage to come to the labels and say, hey, gee, we're really sorry about all this piracy that's happening. Caused by us, of course. But yeah, we're, gee, we're really sorry that all your music is being pirated. Tell you what, we have this new service we're coming out with. And um, we want to get the proper licenses. We want to do the right thing. So will you license your music to us? Now, we won't give you hardly anything. In fact, we're only going to give you fractions of a penny per stream to your musicians and songwriters that make this music. But it's better than nothing, which is what you get from piracy. And so that is, in a nutshell, the mob mentality of the way the Internet has now gone. We've gone from this naive, naively optimistic vision of the Internet being this very diverse group of voices and a lot of sort of, you know, the online equivalent to mom-and-pop stores where a robust middle class and niches can exist and a very direct, you know, person-to-person -person relationship, right? No more middlemen, no more of these big, giant chain stores, right? That was what a lot of people were sort of rebelling against that in the 90s, right? That sort of Walmart mentality. Instead, the Internet would be a lot more free from that. But in actuality, what happened was the exact opposite. Even bigger and more powerful monopolies formed. You've got Amazon, who does 90% of the <laughs> retail of everything. But starting with books, they monopolized the book industry and ran out of the mom-and-pop bookstores out of business. Um, Spotify did the same for music. Um, and so, so now we're left with these very powerful corporate monopolies. Um, and... And the impacts go well beyond music. So I mentioned Amazon and, and its impact on not just the, the, the book industry, um, sort of overnight deciding that they were just going to cut the um, royalty payments in half for, for e-books. And you think about the impacts there, okay? Huge. Like, as soon as they become such a monopoly that there's really no way to compete against them, they announced they're going to cut the royalties for their ebooks, and so the authors that make these books don't really have a choice, do they? Because if you're an author, you kind of cease to become 
a viable, legitimate author if you decide you're not going to put your book on Amazon, right? Right? It's like being a musician and saying, I refuse to put my music on Spotify. Well, you kind of cease to exist in the eyes of, you know, your potential fan bases then, right? And although that's tragic and heartbreaking for musicians, it's very, it becomes increasingly more serious when you think about authors because they could do the, especially for nonfiction authors, they can be doing incredibly valuable research that can have major impacts on our democracy and and all sorts of social issues. And so that book... Well, that, and the, the, the point to make there about those that can speak some truth to power is that you know, even in writing a book, it's not as if you're just regurgitating information. The process of writing the book is thinking through ideas. I mean, it's right. the, it's the you know you're 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 putting the sword into the heat, yeah. and you're you're transforming something. And so it's it, you know, it, it it really is back to this kind of having the space to be able to think through one's thoughts. Exactly. In in that tradition, in the literary tradition, that's so important. And and also you know not to kind of compare industries, but one aspect of musicians is that a lot of musicians, certainly younger musicians can tour and make a lot of, make, you know, make their money there. That's at least what we hear, right? You make money on touring, but that's not a hear. lot of authors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, and we'll get into that, but yes. not a lot of authors are able to tour, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you I know. I don't know if people are going to spend 15 bucks a pop to listen to an author speak, exactly. although that, that, you know, it may be shifting. I don't know. Well, authors go to speak, to sell their books. So their speaking fees are only for the top megastar authors and right. for everyone else, they're speaking for free in hopes that people will buy the book after the talk. And so if you, if you overnight, if a tech company, a tech monopoly decides they're going to just arbitrarily cut what they're paying to authors, you have knock on effects that are incredibly damaging because what if that author is someone who's doing some research and some expose about our government and how it works or some war that shouldn't be happening or who's behind some very important thing in in the world that research ceases to happen because the author then has to figure out how to make a living other ways which often ends up being well I'm going to teach a class and <laughs> maybe I'll figure out a way to write this book in my spare time and there's there's really there's really no better way to silence people than economically and mm -hmm. I realized that in the making of this film because I used to think oh well you know there are a lot of oppressive regimes in the world that silence their you know citizens and in various ways right but it's only a matter of time before those citizens stand up, right? Even the most brutal dictatorship. The citizens, there's only so much they'll take, and eventually they'll rise up and overthrow that government. Right. But when you're economically silenced, meaning you have to basically work all the time in order to support yourself, and at the end of the day you're just exhausted, you don't write that expose. You don't write that song that em em empowers people to, to, you know, to do something. Or, or you, you don't end up writing that article. You don't end up 
being a photojournalist that captures this important thing happening in Syria? Because why would you risk your life with bullets whizzing by your head to write a piece or capture something on film uh, if you're not getting paid for it? You know, it's an interesting point, Count, is that all we need to do is look at history books and query what do dictatorships, fascist governments, you know, what do they go after? Well, they, they go after intellectuals and creative types, and they try to silence that. And so whether you, you know, this really isn't about economics. What I like so much about what you're saying is that we've, we're entering into this and talking about economics. We're really talking about core values. Yeah. And, and how, how, how the human being apparently really needs to experience and express their creativity and those who are in power will go after those people that are expressing their creativity seemingly first. So th yeah. there's a very interesting relationship here that we're kind of getting into. Um, because th they, th know, th they know that that's who draws the attention. And that's, that's, that's right. the connection here is that, you know, an oppressive dictator will go after uh, a voice of dissent that has a following, right? Because that's where the eyeballs are. There's attention on that person. And that's exactly right. the same method that is used by giant tech companies at the moment. And they're not doing it in a malicious way. They're just doing it because mm. that's where the eyeballs are. That's where the money is, right? If you can aggregate that, and that's why there's a chapter in my documentary that's called Eyeballs and IPOs. And that's the way Silicon Valley works, right? If you can finagle, scheme, manufacture a way to aggregate eyeballs, no matter what it is that they're being aggregated for, you make money, and you make monopoly money. It's not real money. It ends up being real money to you, but to everyone else, it's just play money. It's venture capital money. If you can show that you've got users, it doesn't matter what those users are doing, you can say you've got market share, and that's what Silicon Valley rewards, and that's how you get your IPO. That's how you sell to another giant company, which creates more mm -hmm. of these monopolies which is what's happening in Silicon Valley, right? You know, uh, with you know, Instagram being owned by Facebook and YouTube being owned by Google, they go out and buy these companies once they see they have hundreds of millions of users being aggregated into one place. It seems harmless at first, right? But then the end results end up being kind of staggering. Um, I mean, you think about what's happened with Facebook and how that's now affecting our democracy. Once you get to the point where you're aggregating that many people into one place and they're getting their news almost solely through Facebook, which was the case, you know, a few years ago, all of a sudden you've aggregated all these people into one place and you can sell their data without their knowing it. You can sell advertising and you sort of just, you control the whole situation. And even though you may have never intended in your wildest dreams to create a scenario where fake news could completely sway an election and change the world, as was I truly believe the case with Facebook, I, I can pretty much guarantee you that 
the fairly progressive folks at Facebook had no intention of the current president ever taking power. That's probably not mm. what they wanted. However, they sure did like the money that was coming in, and they sure didn't really seem to care that the information that was on their platform was real or fake. They were getting paid for it, and that's all they really cared about. If they had cared more about, you know, our democracy, then they would have shown us through their actions. As you mentioned at the very beginning of this right. talk, uh, you know, show me through your actions. And we're still kind yeah, of waiting. what's your waiting. behavior? What are you doing? Yeah, we're still kind of waiting to see that, um, whether people will finally do that. We still haven't seen that with Spotify. We haven't seen it with Amazon. Um, we've heard from Zuckerberg at Facebook. We've seen how Google operates, and they are perhaps the most important um, and most guilty of, of the sort of <laughs> all information shall be free motto, even if it means everyone else suffering uh, as a consequence. We want all information to be free. And they, they, they will use that slogan and try to make it sound as if they the, the Google wants the world's information to be free for the benefit of the world, whereas in reality, they want information to be free so they can make lots of money off of it. Because Google's information is not free. Their search algorithm, that is under locks and keys. That is not free. Right. That's a great point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it makes, um, you know, I think psychologically we call this shadow and it it's one of those things that, you know, my wife can see my back, but I can't. And uh, and if she were to point it out, I'd, you know, have a defensive response. <laughs> we do that on the, you know, macro level also. You know, these corporations, they, you know, they, I, I, th I think of the, the, the phrase, you know, nobody fights a battle under the banner of evil. It's it's truly one of those things that people, you know, this whole theme, right? People go into it idealistically. They go into it with, I think the, the best way to say that is with unconscious intentions. Sure. And, or at least they're unconscious of the shadowy intentions that may manifest and eventually do later on. Yeah. And that's where the real danger plays out is that when kind of greed and materialism take over, um, that that sucker has got wheels and it starts moving fast. Absolutely, and, and you know, and, and back to the hate Ashbury comment that you know that's what happened, right? I mean, you've got free love and you know the connection and you know be good to nature, and then you've got the hell's angels killing people in the middle of the street, right? And you know, maybe it, maybe that's a bit extreme, but I no, I but it's you know. there. This is this is a a classic case of these unintended consequences. Um, yeah that emerge from people with good intentions um, being naive and hopelessly naively optimistic. Um, and blind. I mean, you, can watch, you can watch TED Talks where Chris Anderson, the former editor of Wired Magazine, with a straight face, mind you, and I used a clip of this in my film, is talking about um, how he sees there being a a, a vibrant gift economy. I'm not even kidding you. He uses the term gift economy that's emerging where people are giving stuff away for free. This was a few years ago he said this. And I mean, I don't blame him for wanting to explore that idea. 
but he was he had gone beyond exploring it. He wrote a book that became required reading for like almost every corporate you know executive in the country. He spoke all around the world about the free economy. I mean, how naive how could you have thought that that would have worked out? Like <laughs> this is the editor of Wired magazine and you know writing best-selling books about how People are just going to start giving away their work for 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 free, and everything's going to work out and be just fine. Okay, let's. L- l- I feel I want to go back a little bit into part of the kind of your thread and get it. You keep referencing the film, and I want to be able to give you plenty of time to talk about that because, you know, when when we had talked about doing this conversation, and I was telling you I'm working on a book, and you said, "We, well, you know, this is here's my book. It's in video, you know, format." Yeah, or or that you had basically written a book in in preparation to kind of uh, give life to the images. So when you're let, let's kind of in time wise, Napster comes along, things really start to evolve, and early two thousands hit. And I, I read there's a quote in your trailer that I that I think is kind of surprising. It's in two from two thousand four to two thousand nine, approximately thirty billion songs were illegally downloaded on the internet. And I think that hopefully we've done enough tending to why that's a meaningful statistic and why the consequences are so impactful of, of that kind of piracy. But I'm, I'm interested in where your thinking was when all this was happening. So if we're looking at timelines, we're really talking like 2000 to 2004. Interestingly enough, that's where you and I really connected. And I, I flew out to San Francisco to do where you were mixing some of that record. Yeah. You mixed the record. So, uh, of course, I had no idea a lot of this was going on. I was a young guy. and Yeah, uh, you, you know, didn't really realize the, just to, the industry you were trying to get into was collapsing, and it was collapsing no, not at for all. a I very was just specific like, reason. S- yeah, I was stoked to be sitting with you and <laughs> working on music. You know, yeah. I was just felt honored, you know? Yeah, and um, I, would, I would love for artists like you to continue to be making music, but um, I think people sort of misunderstand that you know, with certain kinds of creators, they do it for the love of it. And the financial aspects are either not thought about at all or they're on down the line, right? They're, they're right. down the priority list of importance. However, wherever you fall on that spectrum, it doesn't matter if you are the most, you know, <laughs> least capitalist person on the planet. At some point, you do need money in order to survive, in order to, more importantly, to continue creating the thing that you create. And without investment, without resources, you can't continue to create. So it's not about the intent for you first starting to create. That's never an issue because most musicians never start out getting into it for the money. It's about how do you sustain creating, and that requires money. Right. Well, and a friend of mine that I interviewed is a therapist, and I think he said it on this this podcast, and I certainly have integrated this into my psychotherapy practice. I, I love this idea that he he said that, you know, when whenever a client says, "Look, you know, you know, you don't care about me. I pay you for your time, or I pay you to be here. I pay you to care." 
And it's, it's, <laughs> it's a, it's a shift, you know, you pay me for my time. The caring is just, you know, who I am and the consideration I've been spending years learning how to do this and reading and training. And so when you, you essentially are paying me so that I can be completely undivided in my attention for the next 50 to 90 minutes, exactly, be very present with you. And I don't, I'm not worried about, yeah. you know, my and family. You, or, and you pay, you pay you so that you can get more of the thing that you need. That's really what you're doing. It's, it's not that you're paying. Yes, you are, of course, paying in the case of a musician or a journalist for the work they've already done. But you shouldn't think of it that way. You should think of it like a subscription service, right? I'm paying you right, so you can right. go out and create another amazing album or write another important piece of journalism. Well, as a, as a matter of principle, I, I pretty much purchase every every song. I, you know, of course, I'm kind of grew up in this industry, and so I'm I'm very well aware what you know my ten dollars and or fifteen dollars does. And I remember the time where we were. I mean, I would. <laughs> When I was a young musician, I was—I think I was working three jobs. I mean, I was waiting tables, right. cooking in a kitchen. I was doing all kinds of stuff just to make ends meet and playing shows three or four nights a week. And, of course, I wasn't making any money doing that on that kind of upswing. But I, 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 I was kind of a rare, at least as far as in my, in my group, I was a rare story. And then I got a record deal and was able to be a, quote, professional musician yeah. However, you know, short-lived it was, but, uh, you know, that I certainly dreamed of, you know, at the time, I think I really defined success as the ability to, you know, do more of what I love, to be around more people that similarly love what they do and also craft. And so we can kind of create better art. Yeah. And that, that was, that was the point, you know, I wanted to be as creative as possible all the time. Right. And probably have a lot of fun in the process <laughs> and that <laughs> you know? and that's really what we as music fans all really kind of want at the end of the day right we want the bands that we like the kinds of music that we like to continue being created and a lot of the times people don't understand they they wonder why why do these bands break up why well usually because a lot of the times it's financial most of the time it is financial yeah and um, so they, we, we have a disconnect right now between the quote-unquote free internet and then the impacts that it is having. And that's, that's really, that's in essence the story that I wanted to tell and what made me want to tell the story in a documentary and why I've sort of taken almost a bit of a had to take a bit of a hiatus from my career which has been really successful as a music producer in order to tell this story um because i won't have a career as a nobody will have a career as a music producer if things continue down the path that we are headed so i thought well i don't really have a choice i need to tell this story um and and so that's that's what i've spent the past five years researching, interviewing, and putting this together into a three-part documentary called Unsound. And it's, uh, I just finished part one. I'm looking for distribution now, ironically. Um, and, and, <laughs> yeah. and funding for parts two and three um, so that I 
cannot uh, spend you know, 12 hours a day on my day job as a music producer for at least a little while so they can finish parts two and three. And that's, that's kind of, that's kind of where this project is at right now. I've done two private screenings in LA and San Francisco that went incredibly well, um, far exceeded my expectations. Um, I even invited people from the tech community out to the San Francisco screening and nobody complained there were people who i thought for sure i might lose a couple of friendships over this heated hmm. or what often becomes a very heated subject and surprisingly the people working for tech companies they got it they don't want things to be this way um so there is at least a little bit of you know hope <laughs> and that we could potentially change things around so that the next generation isn't defined the way the past two generations have, which is how do we extract all of the value from everything else that people make in the world so that we can get rich from it? That's essentially, it's a very cynical way of looking at it, but that that is essentially how the world has gone the past couple generations. How do we make a buck off of everyone else's work? Let's jump into uh, kind of the the theory and the um, kind of where you where you started and what you found out when you were researching. I, as I was doing some some kind of legwork in preparation for our conversation, you know, I watched your trailer and uh, and read a couple of articles, and, and I'm, I was kind of jotting down some ideas. I mean, the arguments against this. You know that that the people who kind of look and go look, look essentially, um, you're going to have an older group of musicians who knew what it was like pre '96 or '98, who who knew the kind of uh, you know as we're heading into '98 and music sales are through the roof, and then all of a sudden there's this you know gulf. You fall into this abyss when it comes to the economics of music. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that that some of the arguments that I that because I'd like to start our exploration of your your film, setting it up with some of the common arguments that you hear, and I want to go through about three or four, and I want you to add a couple because I, sure. I want to hear any critiques in the in the front end. So there's the first argument is the radio or TV argument, which is hey, it's always been free, you know, uh, the model of you know, uh, creativity or arts has always been, we've got either television or film or, um, or radio, and they're going to make their business off advertisement. So it's, that's, that's kind of how things work. You know, everybody's belly aching because the model has changed. Um, so that's number one. Well, the sure. Second, let's, let's start with the, let's do them one by okay. one. Um, okay, good. So first, uh, you often hear that. And if you think that, that argument through that, hey, music has always been free because the radio is free. Um, there are a lot of problems to that. So first and foremost is that radio is probably the biggest scam in the history of the United <laughs> States. They get to use our music for essentially free. They don't really have to pay any upfront costs and they get to keep all of the ad revenue. They don't invest a dime in the creation of music. They don't do anything to help 
in the creation of music, they just are in they're just allowed to take that music. And then on top of that, they only pay a portion of the money, which is the songwriters, and they pay zero dollars to the performers of that music. Aretha Franklin mm-hmm. got zero dollars from the song Respect. Frank Sinatra made zero dollars. Whitney Houston made zero dollars. The songwriters made some money, but they didn't have to upfront any costs. They could just take that out of the ridiculous amount of advertising well, they made. So first of Cal, all, I think- like, there's a bit of a scam there, radio in the in the first place. And people would argue that, well, radio used the 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 leverage that they had by saying, "Well, look, we're giving you promotion, right?" Right. You've right. got this promotion, that so familiar. that's worth something. And so for a long time, people went along with that. And it was the case that if you did get a lot of radio airplay, you usually also got record sales as a result. Right. And that's the main difference between radio and what we have today is that radio was not infinite and on demand. The Internet is infinite and on demand. So you never have to tune into a radio station if you own the thing already, essentially, by having access to it, which is what you have on the Internet. So the radio gave you a little taste of something, the same way someone at the farmer's market has got a little piece of fruit chopped up, and they, <laughs> you want a little piece of it, and you're like, that's pretty good. I'm going to buy four. Yeah. You In the Internet, you essentially have hijacked the truck from the fruit vendor at the farmer's market before he even had a chance to set up. And that's, that's the difference there. So, uh, the, and I'm going to come back to argument two in a second, but I'm, I'm realizing also if we could do a bit of tending to the business of music, cause I, you know, I don't want to make any assumptions. I was in that business and I learned things in my early twenties that I'd never known before. Yeah, You know, I, I'm sure that's really surprising for somebody to hear that Aretha Franklin did not make any money or Sinatra didn't. Then they had so much, yeah. the 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 music industry has is a, a long history of being flawed in in a lot of ways. And you look deeply into most industries, and you find that's the case. They're a lot uglier yeah. under the under the surface than you might realize. The music business is even more flawed, just because it's a little more complex, and copyrights, and publishing, uh, make it such. And so without getting into the details of that, because that is beyond most people said, and and it's sort of a side conversation, but Mm -hmm. suffice it to say that um, in the case of radio, um, very little money was being paid to the musicians. Um, They were getting some value sometimes in the form of promotion, but only because of the leverage that those radio stations had in the first place. Um, and no money was being paid to the performers, which I'm going to have to just go out on a limb and say that's pretty disgusting, <laughs> uh, as most people would would think as well. But again, when you have an established industry with that much power over you, it's very difficult to make any sort of change slowing down even further I, I can't my fantasy here is that you've got you know an artist uh, who's writing a song who then gets together with other people to perform 
So they're mm-hmm. a band. Mm-hmm. And then they make a bunch of songs and they decide they're eventually going to save all their money and go to a studio with a an engineer. Maybe they have, I guess the engineer is producing or maybe they have you know somebody else that comes along and they produce an album. Then they've got to manufacture the album. And so, so right there, you've got kind of the indie process. That's a big the, ecosystem the next- there that has to be fed. Right. And none of that is accounted for in the traditional radio world, but it's even less accounted for in the modern internet digital version, which is a Spotify or you know, Pandora. Um, well, literally, it, it literally gets- none of that is, is even considered. So the price, so if you think of just in a very simple economic terms, no, there's no business in the world um, prior to the digital economy that would ever not consider the price of creating and the, the price of, and the time spent creating and the components, the ingredients or whatever it is required to create the thing that you're selling. You would never open a business and not consider those. If you were a bakery and you made donuts and you you didn't and you failed to consider, well, how much time does it take to make these donuts and how much does the flour, sugar and blah 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 cost, you'd be out of business pretty quickly. You have to consider the cost of making it and then charge accordingly. So if it costs you a dollar to make the donut, you have to charge a little more than that dollar in order to make make living. Fast forward years later to the digital economy and you have Spotify and they literally, the executives who I've talked to literally have no idea how much it costs to make music and have never considered it in the process of creating this I guess you could call it an ecosystem. An ecosystem actually, you know, it's, it's more it's cyclical and makes sense. This is more it's of more a, symbiotic. Yeah, this is a this linear is... system that goes from I create right. down here at the bottom, and guy up at the top makes all the money, and that's it. So it's 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 a instead of a cycle, it's a straight line direct into the CEO's mouth, and it's a complete arbitrary price. And Spotify landed on the price of free. And that is really what the core of, that's how the internet works now. Offer something for free. Of course, everyone will want to use it. You'll aggregate users very quickly if you offer anything for free, especially popular music. And then worry about monetizing it later. But you worry about monetizing it for yourself. And you don't worry about how the people who created all of that attention in the first place are going to monetize their lives. So Spotify is free, even if it's ad-supported, let's say. Let's just break it down a little bit more. Let's say it's free. Right. That's what most people use. They don't pay the subscription. And even though the subscription uh, uh, subscription users do are growing... The amount they're charging for the subscription is so low that it couldn't possibly ca- account for the, the entire history of the world's music. I was five ninety nine going to cover the cost of creating every song that's ever been recorded. Of course, it can. What would you? So we can make this concrete. 
let's say somebody's creating an album in you know 2005 and they're doing an indie release how much you know not a not a cheap one a decent one mid-range album how much does it cost to create an album in the studio uh well the most of the creation is the time and that's the thing that people forget about and and I, actually if you remember during the Napster uh, era the big argument was well, we're tired of paying sixteen ninety nine for these CDs. We heard they only cost about fifty cents to make. Well, that's that's absurd. <laughs> You're not paying for the plastic. You're paying right. for the music that's <laughs> on the plastic. That's like saying, okay, I'm not paying for Moby Dick. That book is a few hundred pages, and that paper must have only cost about a dollar. Well, you're not paying for the paper. You're paying for the words that were on the paper and the time it took for that person to think of those words. And so, you know, fast forward to... I'm sorry, I forgot your question. That was my aside to sort of... No, that was a good aside, though. But it's to point out that there's a difference between a price and the cost, right? Yeah. What I want to do is help people understand that it... I'm really sensitive as somebody who is at a stage in my life where I didn't have $2 bills to rub together. And all I wanted to do was create music for the rest of my life. Right. And, and and we took a lot, I mean, I was, I got into a new business and it was called the business of asking people who you knew to invest in your record. Yeah. And it was an expensive endeavor. And I'm, I'm just trying, essentially, I'm trying to help people understand from a yeah, what more does it concrete cost? lens. Yeah. Yeah. What there are cost? a lot of costs. Because I, there's a whole ecosystem there, starting with the songwriter and the process of writing a song, which people often misunderstand because they think, well, you just picked up a guitar and an hour later, a song came out of the other end. Well, first of all, much like a doctor who spends years of his life studying and practicing before they're ever actually, you know, your doctor, you're paying for that time. You're not paying, you know, most of the time you go to the doctor, you spend five minutes with them, you know, maybe 10, 15. Um, you're not paying for that time. You're paying for the 15 years before that he figured out how to be a good doctor. Just like right. a songwriter, you wrote a thousand bad songs before you came up with the good one. So you're paying for that time. So that's just the tip of the iceberg that people don't understand. And then you go to the next level and you got to figure out how to arrange that song. And then you got to write the lyrics for that song. And that's usually a different person. So you have a group of people that you're paying and that time that they're taking and hopefully their you know, expertise in their craft and then the other musicians. And then you get into the engineering costs and the studio time and the producers who add their vision to that song. And mm -hmm. people, uh, I, I've heard it several times. I actually had to get on the microphone at a conference recently to correct <laughs> the people who were gleefully touting that technology has changed the music business for the better because you no longer need those stupid recording studios. All you need is a laptop, right? Hell, right. I've got recording software on my iPhone. And it's just such a preposterous idea because that's the same thing as me saying the ridiculous statement, well, you've got a Canon camera. Why aren't you making films that look just like Francis Ford Coppola? It's a tool, right? The tool means nothing, 
right? Picasso, you happen to use a paintbrush and paint, but if I handed a paintbrush and paint to you, no offense, you <laughs> probably <taken>. wouldn't, like, <laughs> even if you were a good painter, like, that's not, that's the Which tool. Not. It's not, the, not yeah. the, 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 the expertise is, is what you're paying for, right? Right. And so this ridiculous assumption that technology has made those, the old technology obsolete and it's no longer necessary, and therefore we can just cancel out. We can we can subtract all those costs that musicians used to have to spend making their making their albums. Now albums are essentially, and they actually said this quote: "Making a record is now essentially free." I just wanted to like <sighs> like grab the mic from him and say, "I don't think you deserve to be on stage right now because that is the most ridiculous comment I've heard. I think all year." No, it's not free. Of course it's not free. Like, is right. your time free? Like, I just listed, I think, 20 things that are the true costs of of creating, creating an album. Um, and we can't, we can't ignore those and throw those away. And just because you're a tech guy on stage who's being paid by Google to, you know, indoctrinate people with the idea that everything should be free... So that Google can make money, I get that. I'm not blaming you for having that job, but let's just be fair and at least get the information right. Well, and I, and I, if I'm remembering, you know, I think people we were all talking about albums. You know, we were most people that were doing independent albums were spending anywhere from ten to twenty thousand dollars in two thousand, and that was a that was the low 10, end. 000. Yeah, that was the low end. Yeah, I'm talking. Yeah, I'm talking about the small guy on independent. The who, yeah, yeah. That's right. And that's and that's a, a whole lot of money that uh, people were pounding the pavement to get mm-hmm. you know people that would donate $1000. Uh, yeah. I know that I certainly did that. Um okay, I, I the 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 second argument because I I do want, I'm sensitive to your time and I definitely want to get more into the film. Um the the second argument we've addressed a little bit which is the empire uh of the record label, you know that you've already addressed in that kind yeah. of yeah, that you know, misconception. The, the, there, there's actually a chapter in my documentary that I call the, the big bad record label myth, and that was another. Yeah. That was another uh, myth that was perpetuated in the media around the time of Napster, that basically came directly from Napster PR statements. Like they wanted the world to think that the record labels were big bad, greedy, money hungry corporations. And that Napster was the savior, the antidote for all that. And obviously they hadn't taken into account that literally all of the music that was on Napster was created by these big, bad, greedy record companies, right? Where would we be without those big, bad, greedy record companies? Like the Ramones wouldn't exist. John Coltrane wouldn't exist. And so the clash wouldn't exist. Name your favorite artist. They wouldn't have either existed or they just you wouldn't have known about them um, had it not been for those big, bad, greedy record corporations. Right. So as many flaws as there were in the old system, and, and I agree that there were lots of them, they invested money in artists, period. Who's investing money in artists today is Google. Is Spotify? No, there is no investment no. in the in creation anymore. 
Even CNN has let go of all of their investigative news staff. This is the worldwide leader in news. <laughs> um, has dropped its investigative journalism staff. Um, now, I don't know what's happened since that that uh, uh-huh. that moment. Uh, this was a few years ago, but it was important enough for John Oliver to make fun of it, which is ironic that the worldwide leader in news would not have investigative journalists. But you, when, you, when there's no way to make back the money on your investment, it doesn't matter how important and how much you love that thing or how much you want to do it, you eventually have to stop, right? We think of it's very important for journalists as well as musicians and filmmakers. I mean, let's not forget that, you know, I'm talking about the serious stuff, but people like to be entertained. And people, regardless of how you feel about it, people seem to have loved Game of Thrones, right? Millions of people loved that, and they want more of that. They don't understand why there isn't more of it. Why is it taking so long? Why is there a year in between seasons? Most of the people watching Game of Thrones did not pay a cent for it. They were pirating it. It was the most pirated thing show in history. So the tens of millions of people who watched it for free, had they paid the $9.99 a month for the subscription, that would have been $900 million that HBO would have to create more Game of Throneses. <laughs> um, so... You know, people just That's haven't really put it together, you know, that right. That you need to think of anything that you like in the world that you want. You should think of, you know, supporting it more like a subscription service than, than anything else. Because when you think of a subscription service, people mentally tend to put it together that I'm paying for more of this stuff to get made, right? And that's what you really want. And I'm paying I regularly. I think that point is the the point you're making there about the kind of the way in which this was introduced, you know, against the big bad record company, but it was a hostile takeover that created a you know a, a monopoly. Right. And that that that's a pattern that we see in history, in our psychology, in systems, yeah. and certainly economics. And, and we and, can map that on to any organization or any structure. Exactly. And, and it was ironic. So, okay. It was even more ironic with this sort of narrative that came about, which, by the way, is still pervasive today. When I do talks, I have young people even in Eastern Europe that will come up to me and say, but what about, you know, those big bad record labels? They were just screwing artists anyway. I, I keep hearing this. And it's fascinating that that argument actually had any legs to it at all and is still around today. People still believe it. It's literally a line that comes, you know, straight out of a Napster PR statement after they got sued by the record companies. They tried to make them wow. look bad, and somehow or another, this this myth still persists. And it's ironic, because if you think about it, at the time, the guys in Napster were young kids, and they were, were using this argument that the man, you know, the record labels... Right. Um, needed to be taken down. Well, who's the man now? Sean Parker is a billionaire. He took what he what he was able to get from Napster to 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 Facebook, became a billionaire, 
invested that money in Spotify. He is literally the man that he was railing against back then. So what we did was we took this one only vaguely corporate, corporately run system in the past that was dominated by a handful of corporations, five or six major record labels, media companies. And we took mm-hmm. that system and we somehow or another were suckered into railing against it. We blew it up. And now what do we have? We have, instead of five or six major companies, we have one giant mega corporation that's even more powerful, even more monopolistic, and treats artists 10 times worse. So we trusted this young, naive college kid and his lack of knowledge of the music industry. It blew it all up, and now he essentially... in handful of people um, at Spotify and a few now there are a few other streaming services but it's definitely a worse system um, in a lot of ways it's smaller it's more powerful you can't go against it like there's there's no way to make money unless you're in that system so you can't you can't boycott it in other words you could do that in the past um, you can't do that now and and most importantly, there's far less money running through that system. And there's even less money finding its way back to artists. So whatever you think of the old music business, the new one is 10 times worse. Watch it. And I mean that literally. It's 10 times worse for yeah. the people on some aspects of it, some, some songwriters, certainly the producers. Um, I mean, I make about 80% less money. I don't know anyone who could survive on 80% less money than they currently make. Like, and I, I think it does need to be said. I know you've not really, ad- you've, you've referenced once, but you're a, a bigger name in the business. You've, you've worked with many artists that people listening would be, you know, have listened to in the last week that are, they're very familiar with. So we're not talking about someone who's uh yeah yeah the artists you know i've been very fortunate in that i i even though i sought out not to work with the big pop mainstream artists i was able to to work with some very well-known bigger indie artists um and you can take an example of someone like taiko he's one of the he may not be a household name but i guarantee you know people between 25 and 35 especially those listening to indie music and electronic music are very familiar with him and
you know, he's getting tens of millions of streams on these services. So, you know, throughout the year, it's like hundreds of millions of streams. Now think about this. If you're in any business and you have millions of people buying your product or consuming your product, it doesn't matter what business that is, you'd be considered a success, right? You'd be successful. It doesn't matter if you're a bakery or an auto parts store or a <laughs> whatever it is, right? If you've yeah, got whatever. millions of people uh, using your service or buying your product, you'd be considered successful and you would not struggle to maintain a living, right? You'd be able to at least make a living. You may not be ultra rich, but you'd be successful enough to make a living. An artist today has to get over a million streams on Spotify and even more on YouTube, 10 times that many, just to make minimum wage. That Just think about that. That is insane. It How is could insane. it be? Yeah. I mean, a million, if you can maintain getting a million people listening to your music every single month, that is a feat. That is not easy. And it shouldn't be the case that you have to maintain that each month just to make minimum wage. Um, the I'll bring up one technical thing now we won't get into much detail on, but I think it's important for people to know because most people think that the digital economy for music is getting better because they've been reading the news. News that comes directly from a Spotify PR statement. <laughs> so they haven't been questioning it much. They see, you know, the music industry is on an upswing. Finally, after years of, you know, decimation, thanks to Spotify, music is, the music industry is, is on its way back. It's recovering. But the real story that people don't understand is that Spotify, the way it works, is basically a pool of money. And so they don't actually pay per stream, although people often use that as a, as a, a way to, to sort of determine roughly how much they make or Some how much a metric, stream sure. is worth. It's a metric. It's not actually the way they pay. It's essentially a pool of money. You don't get to know how much that pool of money is, which is very suspicious. They take off a lot of money off the top to pay for their lavish lifestyles and 500 plus million dollar lease on their offices in New York. Think about that, over half a billion dollars leasing a building. Um, so all of that money that should be going to artists doesn't. Um, but whatever's left, there's this pool of money and it gets split up. And it gets split up amongst the artists, but it's split up by how many streams occur. So if they make this service that is so popular, more and more people are using it each month, and therefore there are more and more streams that occur each month, that means that that pool of money is getting split up by more and more each month. So each stream is worth less and less as time goes on. So much so that between, I think, 2015 and 16, the amount of money that you made off of a million streams, let's say, let's just, or whatever, 100,000 streams, was worth less by almost 18%, I believe. Whoa. So that means 
each year as an artist, let's say your popularity remains constant and you're able to get a million streams a month. Each year, the amount of money that you're making is decreasing by over, let's just be generous and say 15%, which I, th I think it was 17%. So as bad as it is for musicians, each year it's getting worse because there are more and more people streaming, and so that, all that, that finite amount of money is getting split by more and more. So that means you've got to make, if you're making a million streams a month, that means next year you need to have a million twenty and two hundred thousand streams. It means you have to keep growing and growing by an insane amount just to break even, just to just remain constant and again and rake in that wonderful minimum wage check. <laughs> yeah, it's still funny. You know, I I, I get a uh, I get a forty dollar check maybe every two quarters. Don't spend it all in one place. <laughs> I'll do my best. Yeah. So, uh, which brings this is a good bridge into argument three, which is the access argument. Now, uh, you know, you'll hear people talk about. Now, wait a second. This is giving voice to somebody living in wherever that is an artist, and they they don't have access. They don't have the connections. They don't have the record label friends. You know. And immediately, overnight, they post something that people like, and they're all of a sudden they got eyeballs. So eyeballs are on them. That's and great. What this argument is saying that what this is doing is actually promoting people's creativity because it's making. You know, I think some of the intuitive move here is that more people get affirmation for their creativity, therefore more people are giving life to their creativity. Sure, there's no there's no question that there's more music being consumed than ever before and there's more music being created than ever before. The problem is is that the direct artist to fan relationship that should have existed that should have been born out of this internet revolution has been hijacked and it's not a direct relationship. It goes through someone else and that someone else is the one benefiting financially. So, if you're getting exposure, that's great. But like the Woody Allen joke, you know, you can die from exposure, <laughs> you know, <laughs> too much exposure, you know, in the wild and you die from it. Um, exposure yes. is only the first step. And Spotify knows this. The radio stations of the past knew this and they milked that as long as they could. And they're still fighting it. We're still trying to get Congress to pass a law to get people like Aretha Franklin paid for their work. And it's crazy yeah. to me that um, that you can still use that argument while we're giving you exposure. So in Hollywood, um, if you're an actor, especially if you're an actress, if you're a young, lovely, talented female and you go to Hollywood to try to make it as an actress, Imagine how easy it would be to exploit that young woman if you were allowed to say, hey, I got this new film. I want to make you the star in this film. Now, we're not going to pay you for your work, um, but we're going to give you exposure. Could you imagine how easy it would be to exploit anybody? And that was the case, I'm sure, for years. But the Screen Actors Guild put an end to that. 
and they don't allow that. You can't really do that realistically um, and have any sort of degree of success, right? Mm-hmm. You have to get paid for your work, and they do that to um, avoid <laughs> the potential scenario of, you know, people getting exploited for their work. Um, so exposure, yeah, you can die from exposure. Um, you want? <laughs> do you want to? Uh, you want to help people get exposure, um, of course, and that is one of the wonderful positive things that we should definitely bring up in the story because it's not all negative. In fact, today, if you look at the Internet revolution, you can sort of, if you just sort of section off just creators, how has this revolution been? You could make a list of pros and cons, right? And you'd have on the pros side... 25 amazing things. I can reach more people. I can reach people in different places. I don't have the gatekeepers. You can go on and on and on. And on the con side, you might just have one con. But that one con is inability to make any money. (laughs) It may just be one con on the list, and it may be 50 pros. But that one con makes up for all 50 pros because if you can't make any money and you can't keep doing it and you stop doing it, and then that's kind of the end of the story. You have a day job. Yeah, so we're back to that sustainability <laughs> model, yeah. which is really the issue. So the, 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 uh, the exposure is a wonderful thing. The problem is that exposure, right, for right now, the way things are, you have an inability, an utter inability to turn that exposure into a future that yeah. gains you anything from your digital work. You only have the ability to turn that exposure into face-to-face performance, you know, that can be monetized. Well, that and makes uh, Andy Warhol's statement be more pathetic than... At first glance, you know, 15 minutes of fame yeah, uh, is, is pretty ubiquitous. Yeah, and so if you only have the ability to monetize face-to-face, let's say, okay, let's use that, that argument that, uh, yeah, the Internet's great. This kid in Indonesia can have a hit on YouTube and get 10 million people to like his video. Well, right. first, let's look at that. 10 million people liking your video on YouTube nets you a couple hundred dollars. Doesn't even buy you a plane ticket to go to perform for those people in the U.S. Right. And you wouldn't be able to get shows because everybody who's a musician, who's ever been a musician throughout history, is now trying to tour in order to make a living because they aren't making a living off their recorded music anymore. So all the venues are filled months months in advance, and only the absolute, the established artists who are guaranteed to pretty much sell out the venue are going to get booked in those shows. They're going to be taking less chances on this hypothetical kid from Indonesia who has a YouTube hit, and they're not quite sure how many people they can bring into the club so they're going to go with the legacy artist who had the benefit of touring with tour support and the support from a record mm-hmm. label and the benefit of having to being able to sell their recorded music from the past. 
So this uh, this exposure myth, it does admittedly work out for a few people. And those few people you hear about constantly in the media because they want to champion that. It sounds like such a great story. And if it were true for more than two or three people, I, trust me, I'd be the first one to be you know, touting the benefits of this new system that we're in now. But sadly, it doesn't work out. It doesn't work out for hardly anybody. Um, and, and it would be nice if it did, but even if it did work out, right? Even if most people who had YouTube hits who were unknown could, could go out and, 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 and make real money on the road touring, I would still be arguing that they shouldn't necessarily have to. It's actually quite unfair that YouTube mm. should be making all of the money off of that recorded music and forcing that artist to have to leave their families and be on the road constantly in order to make money elsewhere. I would argue that an artist should be able to, if they have a popular enough song on any of these platforms, they should be able to make a living from that and that alone. Because these tech companies don't have to go out and do other things to make a living, right? Do the engineers and executives at Spotify have to go out on the road to make a living or sell t-shirts? <laughs> no, they only have to get good at one thing. And that one <laughs> thing is recorded music. Spotify is nothing without recorded music. It's literally a, an empty spreadsheet. So if right. they're able to make a living off of just recorded music, then for fuck's sake, the artist should be because it's their music that's drawing the attention in the first place, right? Yeah. Well, it seems to be, I mean, here, here we are in the world of um, corporation is king and whether we know it or not, our value tends to align with that, that the, that the corporation is, is, where, is where the money goes, not, you know, we, not uh, the individual and certainly not the creative. Sure, sure. It's just more it's just more extreme with musicians though. Like I think, you know, most people are aware of like the way the corporations work. It's always going to be the case that the founder and CEO and the top executives are going to make most of the money, the workers on the assembly line are not going to make as much. The difference is right. if the worker on the assembly line had also been the mastermind engineer who invented the core technology that made the thing possible, right. that would be really weird if they were making minimum wage and the CEO is making a lot of money. That's not the case in the physical world. The guy or girl who, who developed the technology and is the mastermind creator of something, well, they, they usually make the money, right? They make or at least enough money. Um, makes a lot of sense. And sometimes they might sell that invention to another company, and that other company goes on and makes a lot of money. It That all kind of generally t tends to work out. Everyone signs a bad deal here and there, but in general, that is the case in the physical world. In the Internet, the mastermind who creates the thing is getting the short end of the stick, and the, the mere delivery mechanism, middleman, is making the lion's share. And in fact, in many cases, they're making all of the money. Like literally all of the money. Like no money goes back to the artists in the case of mega okay. upload or, or you know, 
Pirate Bay. Here we are at the end of our conversation. I'm I'm grateful for um, for your generosity of your time. <laughs> Speaking mm-hmm. of time and You're money, very welcome. Um, and and I I want to give us enough a little bit of space for you to be able to tend to any threads we really haven't pulled on. But also speaking about the film that you've done that we keep referencing a little bit, but you've yeah. you've created this wonderful film, and it, it it addresses all of the issues that we've been talking about, and I'm sure more. And I, I'm maybe as a researcher, I'm really curious what you discovered through the process that you didn't you didn't anticipate, and if you could also just kind of tell people, just let them know about that process and what the film is. Uh, so first of all, the film was born out of my personal experience watching my career go in a wonderful direction, getting to work with bigger and bigger artists and having those artists do better and better to the point where they're getting nominated for Grammys and even winning Grammys. But me making so little money each year, making less and less that I had to sit down and think, I, I have to do something else for a living. Like I have to quit happening. (laughs) How is it possible that I keep doing better and better, but I have to basically quit soon. Wow. And it made me realize that while I was watching the tech industry become more flooded with resources than ever before, there's never been more money in the tech and creative world, and there's never been more funding for ideas, not even proven you know, just whimsical ideas you can get venture capital. I mean, maybe that's an that's an exaggeration. That was definitely the case in the 90s. But let's just put it this way. There's a lot of funding for tech ideas and tech ventures. And while mm-hmm. that continues to grow and blossom and expand into almost a ridiculous state, uh, making it such that it's so expensive now to live in San Francisco, guys like me can't afford it, at the same yeah. time... There's never been less money and less investment in the things that power these platforms, which is astonishing. So I realized that I needed to tell that story because I thought for sure someone was going to make a documentary about this. But I told myself, okay, next year at Sundance, if there's no documentary on the subject, I'm going to just start um, and make it myself. So that's what I did. And... uh, the the that was the the reason for me starting and it wasn't just my own personal experience i was really frustrated by the artist's perspective i i'm an artist myself but i also mainly make other people's records for a living and so of course i was frustrated that i couldn't make a living or was you know struggling to make a living I mean, I complain about this, but I'm one of the only people in the Bay Area that is able to make a living solely off of producing music, which is kind of astonishing. But um, so, uh, yeah, I guess I shouldn't complain, but I I, I was more frustrated by the fact that the artists that I work with couldn't afford to pay me and therefore couldn't afford to make the records be all that they could be. That was the thing that just killed me because it's, it's, it's one thing you know, to think, oh, well, these rich rock stars are making a little bit less money. Too bad. But that's not the case. What's really happening is you're robbing yourself, the music fan, out of a future potential great album because all of these artists are trying to create something and 
they don't have the means to make it all that it could be, right? Imagine, I don't know what kind of music you listen to, but if you like Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, or Radiohead's OK Computer, or... Yeah, I was any, listening to that album today. Yeah, OK so these, these are albums that are not easy to make. They take a long time to make, and they require a certain amount of r- yeah. resources in order to make them um, not just be all that they could be, but to be or exist at all. I mean, these albums would be terrible if they were just a guy making it on a laptop. They just wouldn't work. Nobody would care about them. And that's not all music. That's just, you know, it's it's a portion of music. But those are the more extreme examples. Um, so I saw what was happening to artists, and I was realizing that they were compromising on such a level that in many cases they were just quitting altogether because they, they, they really couldn't do what they needed to do. Um, or they were making a compromised piece of art, which was extremely frustrating mm. to me. So I wanted to mm-hmm. tell that story. And so the process of telling that story, I had to research and find who were the people that understood what was happening. Because you might remember, if you're old enough <laughs> and were paying attention, that during Napster... There was one artist that spoke out in particular, and that was Metallica. Yeah. And something really, really terrible happened to Metallica during that process. They got trashed. Instead of people saying, yeah, this is bullshit, there's this tech company who's raising millions of dollars in venture capital, exploiting your music and not paying you a penny, which should have been a really obvious stance for most people to have taken had they had just a little bit of knowledge with the basic information. Instead, the media did a horrendous job in laying out the facts for people and painted Metallica as greedy rock stars. And they were so demonized in the press that every other artist who was well-spoken and articulate and understood the issues, they all went silent. They were all afraid to speak out. Uh, against this injustice that was happening to them. So for many years, no artists were speaking. So my first obstacle was to A, find people in the media business who are even willing to speak about this subject, which seems insane to me now because it's such an obvious injustice. It would and, you know, this is the case. You find it in other documentaries about social issues where there are injustices happening and people are afraid to speak out. Um, usually it's fear of retaliation, like violence or death. You know, there are people in war conflict zones who don't want to show their face on TV. But this this was a, a Western problem that seems so benign and so easy to understand. Surely... Nobody was really that fearful to speak out on something that was such an obvious injustice. But yet, there I was for months trying to find the right people. And luckily I did. And as I started interviewing them, one by one, people started to speak out. I'm not going to give my take credit for that. But it certainly, the word started to get around that artists were speaking out and you started seeing more things in the press about it. And, uh, you know, luckily, a few well-known artists like Radiohead 
and even Taylor Swift yeah um did the right thing they said you know what I don't care if I lose fans I don't care if there's a backlash this seems wrong to me so I'm going to speak out about it and and they did and uh and it made at least a little bit of a window for a handful of artists um luckily I was able to do a, a great interview with David Byrne recently who is another one of the very um mm-hmm. Yeah, quite. Who understood the issues and was able to articulate them? David Lowry yeah. from the band Cracker, and a handful of others. Um, but, but for the most part, it's still a real struggle because people have now gone beyond the fear and moved towards acceptance, which is the worst position to be in. Right when you when you've been exploited and you stop trying to speak out you stop worrying about the fear of speaking out and then you just move to the point of accepting that the 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 current situation the reality of your situation is just that's just the way it's going to be so I'm not going to bother speaking out that's really the worst position to be in so I'm going to try to get this film wrapped up as soon as possible before we move into this sort of realm of complete apathy and acceptance um and and I found that as, you know, over the years, as I gained more and more wonderful interviews and pieced them together and started releasing these clips online, people started really responding, thousands of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's some momentum now behind it. And, and as I've shown to a private screening full of like 250 people each time, which is a very big private screening for for a movie that's not out or even really finished you could see there was a (laughs) lot of enthusiasm in the room and i think there's definitely some momentum and uh and i think we're you know if i can get 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 this finished and screened in the right places people will have something to get behind and that is usually if you look at most modern social movements they tend to have something to get behind that catapults it and gives it momentum whether it be sometimes it's just one human story behind something there'll be some injustice that's existed for years and no one did anything about it some people tried it couldn't quite gain enough momentum but then one personal story emerges and then all of a sudden people are on this issue that's been around forever um and sometimes it's a book sometimes it's an article but oftentimes, it's a documentary. I think a lot of people saw with that movie Gasland. Nobody knew what fracking was. No one had ever even heard that term. But some indie kid made a documentary that was on HBO about fracking, and all of a sudden people were outraged. Like, what was what? We didn't realize that gas companies were pumping toxic chemicals into the ground and going into our drinking water. And this kid made a movie about it and. Now, all of a sudden, you know, it's a thing. And so, you know, really, at the end of the day, I just hope that this becomes a thing. (laughs) Well, there's something you said about uh, that certainly, I think one thing we've been doing, one kind of bit of subtext in our conversation today is that in the presentation of these various arguments that kind of fall out easily at first glance, it's... You have to do the heavy lifting to look into the background of what's going on, because those those initial, maybe somewhat, you know, quote, intuitive 
insights into how things work, that that's not really what's going on. You have to actually go to the source and find out what happens in the background of not only the music business, but I'm, I'm willing to say any industry or any social issue or any psychological issue even, um, we really have to do the heavy lifting and tend to what's what's not so easily accessible. And and that seems like it's what you've been doing, man. And that's obviously really valuable. Well, I hope it I hope it becomes valuable. Um I think more importantly, I just hope that the work that creators do becomes revalued because it's be more so than my my own value. I, I just want the work of creators to become valued because it's been devalued for over a decade now to the point where it's literally worth nothing, right? Nobody pays for news. Nobody pays for journalism, books, movies, um, and music. And that is a shame. And as we pointed out, this stuff is not just entertainment. It's heartbreaking as it may be for you to not get a new album from your favorite indie band because they had to call it quits because they weren't making a living. Like, that's heartbreaking mm. and it's tragic. But at the end of the day, people can argue that that's just entertainment and you got to move on. I disagree with them, but you could at least make that argument. But you can't yeah. say that about journalism. If people aren't covering the stories that are going to change the world because they didn't have the investment or because that story wasn't sexy enough to get enough clicks to make the current platforms generate enough ad revenue because it didn't involve a celebrity's nipple slip, that is way more tragic. That is just a disservice. Agreed, to, you know, if that's the world yeah. that we're moving towards, then we have a real problem. And so well, we got to we got to go a little, you know, punk rock and buck the system. That's right. And so that's that's what I'm trying to do now. So uh, um, uh, unfortunately, I need to wrap this up now and get back into uh, working <laughs> on it. But uh, <laughs> although this may not have sounded like the most uplifting conversation, and a lot of people get this. They're always like, God, it's so depressing. How do you live with that story every day? And I'm like, actually, you know what's depressing is not doing something about it. Like yeah, the subject matter, of course, is not wonderful and uplifting and doesn't make you laugh and have fun. But you know what? I'm trying to tell the story so that in the future we can go out and laugh and have fun and have movies and books and art and culture and all of the things that make us do feel positive. So in that sense, this is a very positive story. <laughs> That's the way I look at it. Well, you're making it matter. And you're making it matter to others. You're certainly making it matter to yourself because, you know, back to our first few comments, you are taking your beliefs and not just making it some verbal assent to some, you know, way of being. You're, you're living it. You're, you're, you're walking it. And I think that's powerful. I think it has an effect. And more people, of course, that, you know, <laughs> put their money where their mouth is um, and, and their time and their energy things change. So I, I'm with you, man. I'm, I'm on your bandwagon. And uh, I, there, there have been so many incredible things that have been said today that, again, I just think can map on to all kinds of different uh, systems and all kinds of different arenas of life. 
um, this is just one avenue whereby something that's pretty human is showing up. And we get to reflect on it and say, okay, not only how do we change that thing, but how do I become more aware about certain aspects of that thing and how those aspects show up in my own life and uh, maybe be more attentive to the way I'm living my life and what I'm paying attention to and what matters to me. And that that's really the the goal. I hope that I hope that younger people who are getting into technology see this more than anything, see this documentary or hear this story because these past two generations have been defined by squeezing out all the value of the things that are important to us and extracting that value for a handful of people so they can get filthy rich. And I'm perfectly happy with some people getting rich i just want those people getting rich to be the right people um the people who create the things that we value and that define our lives um and so i hope that the this next generation of people that go into technology will be the generation that uh recaptures and revalues the thing that's really important and creates new technologies that bring us the things that we want, but that also compensate the people fairly for those things. So I hope this next generation is defined by that. If if the if the last generation is defined, and I, I call them generation free, because they think everything mm. should be free, and that really mm-hmm. is, I think a lot of people are realizing that, yeah, this generation free, it's affected who they are as people and how they live in a, in a very unusual and and I would say quite negative way they don't realize it sometimes but if they can be defined by generation free the generation who just went online and grabbed and extracted the value out of the world and paid nothing for it and felt entitled to it I hope the next generation is the one that that changes that course Count thank you so much indeed Wonderful to reconnect with you, sir. You too. 